Hello and welcome to the Everything Phil Collins podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I encourage you to subscribe if you enjoyed this week's episode. I also want to let you know that these podcasts are actually taken from our YouTube channel and you can find out more about our YouTube videos by going to everythingphilcollins.com where you'll get a link to watch all of our videos there as well as some of the other cool stuff that we have on our website, everythingphilcollins.com. But I just wanted to let you know that this was originally a YouTube video and so when I'm talking about certain visuals or if I'm holding something up to the camera, you might be missing out on that. So if you want to watch these episodes as videos, go to everythingphilcollins.com or just enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to a new episode. Your friend Scott here. Today we're going to talk about the album Invisible Touch from Genesis. Now, this is a Phil Collins show, so why are we talking about Genesis? Well, I have some interesting history that might interest you, and that is that Phil Collins for quite a long time was the drummer of Genesis and then, of course, became the singer of Genesis sometime in the mid to late 70s. That's what we're going to talk about today. I, I you know, on this channel, I want to focus every thing on Phil Collins. It's very important that we tackle a record such as Invisible Touch because he played such a huge role in Invisible Touch. And objectively, Invisible Touch is the peak of Genesis. Now, but hold on a second, because I know that Genesis fans are scary. That's why I was afraid to do this video. But when I say peak of Genesis, I mean commercially, I don't mean creatively, I don't mean musical, musicality, musically, but certainly when it comes to um, commercial success in sales, uh, in singles, and uh, in Grammys. This is the only album they won a Grammy for, which was just for the music video. And really just, you know, flying around in private jets and, and uh, you know, four nights at Wembley and I think four nights at MSG. I can't remember. Maybe five nights. I can't remember. But anyway, they say, um, Mike and, and Phil have said in the past, this was their peak. It's not their favorite album per se, but certainly... Um, their peak in many ways. Uh, it's a very divisive record because I think that there are fans, I think there's two ways you could look at this record and we're going to look at every single way, but I think there's two ways you could look at this record. I think you can look at it from the perspective of Genesis, the prog band from the late 60s, early 70s, progressing into this 80s pop band that are all over the radio and MTV, which is one way that a lot of diehard Genesis fans look at it and why there's a, a lot of uh, polarity in, the, in the, um, the responses to this record. But then you could also look at it, let's pretend that Genesis is just a new band coming on the scene in 1986, this record was released in June of 1986 and popping on the scene and releasing a record that sounds a lot like Michael Jackson or Madonna or Earth, Wind & Fire even, and are coming out with these like industrial brash, you know, super long tunes like Domino and 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 a really dark and, and long song like Tonight Tonight, which I think is eight minutes, and the Brazilian, an instrumental track. And so imagine a pop band coming onto the scene and releasing a record that has beautiful pop hits like throwing it all away and in too deep, but then also gets a bit strange on songs like Land and Invisible Touch and then does things like The Brazilian. So if you look at it that way, and, and there's a lot of people who do look at it that way. You talk to people in record stores who aren't too familiar with stuff um, 
prior to Duke that they think of this record, or maybe there's people who aren't even familiar with Genesis prior to Invisible Touch. When they look at this record, they just think of it as a genre-bending, iconic album of the 80s. Of course, a lot of the Genesis fans from the 70s really appreciate this evolution. Although, and I'm one of them, there are people who love all Genesis, and one day I'll do that Calling All Stations review, but there are people who love all Genesis. And we're going to talk about this great album today. This was made... Um, let's just give a little bit of history here. So this record was made um, in 1985, and I believe it was started in the fall of 1985. And there's an interesting, um, basically, you know, Phil didn't have any kids with him at the time. They had spent the summer with them, and then they went off to back to Canada. And so he was at home in, in England with his wife, Jill. They Basically, they had some time off and, and they're coming from, you know, there's this perfect storm that makes Invisible Touch because they're coming from, they're coming from No Jacket Required. They're coming from um, the success of Mike, Mike and the Mechanics' first record, Silent Running. Phil Collins is a massive artist at this point. So they have some time off and it had been maybe three years since they got together. And then there's this enormous confidence because Mike and Phil and, and, and Tony had done some soundtracks and some solo work and Mike and Phil were incredibly successful on their own. So there's an incredible amount of confidence that's happening in the songwriting process. And what's really unique about this, and we saw it a little bit on the Genesis self-titled record, is they had their own studio and so they could go in there and spend all the time they want and just goof off. And so we see them... Uh, improvising and all of the songs on this record are improvised except for I believe Into Deep the chorus of Into Deep was started by Phil on his own so it was all about improvising and that's a way that they would work on a couple of records but this record was uh, mostly improvised and basically they would start with a drum machine we'll do a video at some point in the future about drum machines and why those were important to Phil Collins and why, why he utilized drum machines even though it's ironic him being a drummer we'll talk about that another day but oh by the way my research for this came from Wikipedia, it came from Phil's book, it came from the interviews that they did uh, a decade ago or so when they talked about every album. Uh, and it's uh, Mike Rutherford's book, touched on it for a few paragraphs. Uh, and then, of course, up here, you know, I got a lot of information up here. <laughs> and I'm just filling in the gaps. And so they're improvising. Mike had mentioned it was on this Akai um, drum machine. It could have been an MPC. I'd have to look into that. I'm not sure what, uh, he said it was blue. I'm not sure what was kicking around back then. But Phil would, would play with the beat. And Invisible Touch is a great example. Invisible Touch, Phil says, is his favorite Genesis song, which is kind of crazy. I'm not crazy about it. We'll go through track by track in a second. But Mike is playing this this riff um, for Invisible Touch to this drum machine. Basically, Phil is just improvising lyrics, and the first thing that comes up is she seems to have an invisible touch, which makes sense. And this happens all the time. He'll just say a lyric, like, no son of mine, or um, what's another great example of, well, In the Air Tonight, for example, Sue Studio is another example where he just says something that fits the melody, that fits the, the rhythm and the beat of the melody as well, and then they kind of build the lyrics off from there. And so... Invisible Touch was a song that started with the drum machine and then Mike with that iconic riff and then Tony filling it in with the synths. Invisible Touch is an interesting song and we'll start to go through this now. You know, it, it was their biggest hit. It was it was number one. It may have been their only number one, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, it's really cool. In 1986, um, in the summer of 1986, I believe it was July, Invisible Touch was number one. And number two was Sledgehammer from... Um, from Peter Gabriel. And then the following week, Sledgehammer knocked Invisible Touch out, which is kind of, kind of cute. Um, you know, Phil 
kind of looks back on that as being kind of humorous. I don't know how they felt at the time. Um, and then further on, uh, further down in the charts, Mike and the Mechanics had two songs, uh, including All I Need Is a Miracle in the charts at the same time, which is pretty awesome. So as I'm editing this video, I'm reading this Stereo Gum article from a couple years ago that was talking about this uh, song in the charts and it mentioned that there were actually six songs in the top 100 at the time from Genesis members, including Steve Hackett and Steve Howe's project, Peter Gabriel, and then a couple of Mike and the Mechanics songs. So, so six songs in the top 100 by members of Genesis, including the top two songs. Uh, Invisible Touch is not, it's not my favorite tune from Genesis at all. But what I like about it is how crisp and clean and pop it is. And so they would improvise these songs, put everything together, and they would record everything to the drum machine. And then Phil would come in at the end and record the drums. And he used these drums called Simmons drums at the time, which were like these like kind of hexagon looking pads. I love to get myself a pair of them. They're like 2,000, 5,000. They're still out there. But Tonight Tonight, I really love because especially the eight minute version, and I should have brought up a copy of my 12 inch. We'll do that on another video when I go through all my Genesis vinyl. But I have a, a really nice 12 inch um, single version of Tonight Tonight. I've really come around on it. As a kid, I always thought it was kind of ominous and dark, but I've really come around on it. And I, I think it's a beautiful tune. And I think it's a, a great marriage of the drum machines and the synths that they were doing. And the drum machines we hear is so much uh, on, but seriously, is that they just provide so much space. And I think Phil talks about this a lot, how drummers are get bored easy and they always are trying to be different and, and play things different. And uh, whereas drum machines just can do the same thing, the same pattern um, for hours and hours on end. And so there's something kind of spacious and minimal about that. And you hear that on Tonight Tonight, which I think is really great. And the long version um, is about eight minutes is really, really great. Great tune. For the last couple of years, I didn't play the full thing live, which Land of Confusion is a, a protest song. I'm not crazy about this song, but again, it's got these, it's got a cool sound that we just don't hear very much or we didn't hear back then. And I like it. And the music video, I, I know a lot of people talk about the music video, won a Grammy, but I, I, it is a kid. It was not an appropriate thing for a seven or eight year old to watch. Uh, it kind of messed me up. So <laughs> I kind of sour on that tune a little bit. There's a, the line in it that I cringe. We're not just making promises that we know we'll never keep. My generation will put it right. And I'm like thinking to now, I'm like, Phil, your generation did not put it right. Anyway, good for trying. In Too Deep, uh, you know, there's a lot of hate in the Genesis world of In Too Deep. And if you Google this song, people will talk about how it is like one of those songs, kind of like Hold On My Heart, where you're not sure if it's a Phil Collins solo song or a Genesis song. Uh, it was written for a movie called Mona Lisa. And Phil had the chorus that he had been working on. And he brought it to the band during the sessions, and then they they filled it out. There's an, I'm incredible chord changes. I'm not a piano player, so I can't really highlight what's happening on the bridge and, and on the pre-chorus, but it is a really beautiful tune. It's not an easy song to write. Chorus might be a little bit um, you know, pedestrian, but the verses and the bridge are really special. Classic Tony Banks. So I love In Too Deep. I love hearing it live. Anything she does is a bit of a weird tune. If you know the meaning of it, I'll let you dive into that yourself. That's a track that could have been left off and maybe appease people by throwing in another instrumental or, or, or do something a little darker or ominous there. Domino is great. I've come around on it. I, I, you know, the live 
component is kind of cool. Not necessarily introduction. I've seen that and heard that many a times, but um, Domino is a cool track. And I think, you know, for all the flack that this record gets from some of the quote unquote diehard Genesis fans, it's like, it's still a very brave album. If you're making a, a thriller wannabe record, and not that this is a thriller wannabe record, but if you were trying to make a thriller like record, you would do hit after hit after hit ballad after ballad. But instead there's this side too, where we have a, Part one and part two, a domino song, very much something like Arcade Fire would do today. And then you, you know, relax things a bit by throwing it all away. Throwing it all away is got to be one of my favorite Genesis tunes. I'll get a lot of hate from this, but it's a Phil Collins channel. So hopefully I'll get some love for it as well. Um, but the studio version of throwing it all away is just stunning. And it's classic Mike Rutherford that just that muted palm electric guitar that we hear on all I need is a miracle and turn it on again and follow you follow me uh and living years and throwing it all away that's that's my jam that's one of the things I love about the mechanics is uh that electric stuff that that uh Mike does and so throwing it all away is a great tune the Brazilian was used recently had a great sync placement in an Amazon film with um that guy from Saturday Night Live and what's the the Oh, it's a great movie. You've got to watch it. It's with the guy from, um, uh, oh, whatever. It'll flash on the screen because I can't think of it right now. But great movie and a great, huge climax sync using the Brazilian. So if you're a Genesis fan, a Phil Collins fan, uh, Tony Banks fan, you've got to watch that movie just for that sync alone. And I think the Brazilian is great. And so I think that's what I, you know, I love about, about Invisible Touch is that, we have this big pop record. We also have these moments that are kind of dark and spooky and industrial and big. And so you can't criticize it for being a bubblegum pop record because it's not that in any way. And a lot of people will say it's one of the most iconic albums in the 80s. And here's what I love about it, because this isn't my favorite Genesis record. Probably not in my top three. But here's what I love about this 1986 record, Invisible Touch. It's concise. And you know, I've talked about this before. It's one of the things I love about No Jacket Required is I love when a band sticks to a sound, does a very concise record. What are we, nine here? We're nine songs. We're eight songs, nine if you consider Domino to be two songs. Wow, I didn't realize that. So this is like borderlining an EP. It's a very, it's a long record, of course, but it's a concise record. It has the same brash, Moog, Taurus, drum machine sound. Uh, it's very iconic. But it all kind of stays within the same cohesive sound. That's what I appreciate about records. Uh, and I've talked about that before. You've heard me say that. And that's really what I like about Invisible Touch. And we don't hear that too much, except for the early days, you know, selling in by selling in by the pound, we would hear it. Uh, they started to experiment with different genres after um, uh, Duke is pretty consistent. There's a bit of ups and downs there. But um, after Duke, they started to have a little bit of inconsistent sound. Same with On We Can't Dance. Whereas Invisible Touch is really nice that it's such a cohesive sound. And that's one of the things I love about it. I always find myself, one thing, I think that's one of the things I find interesting about this record for me, and maybe you agree, is the things that I dislike about this record, I often find endearing sometimes. For example, the artwork. The artwork is objectively horrible, but it's also really great. You know what I mean? I mean? It's just like, it's 80s. It's cream, orange, black, and green. Like a horrible color choice. 
But for some reason, like that makes it kind of cool in an ironic way. And I think my opinions of this record will change in a month and a year from now. Um, and 10 years ago, I didn't find any of this 80s stuff endearing. I found it kind of weird. But now it's come back. And in 10 years from now, I probably will think it's bad again. But there's things about this record that bother me. And sometimes those are the things that I love about this record. I don't know if you agree. So those are the things that I find interesting about my appreciation of this record, Invisible Touch, is that there are times where um, things like the artwork uh, or the press photos or the music videos or the tour videos or the songs themselves and the, and the melodies and uh, or the lyrics, that, that things that I find endearing, sometimes they bother me about this record and other times um, it's the other way around. And I just think that's, that's kind of cool about this record, how music evolves as we change. Uh, I know that there are millions and millions of people who this record is hugely important for. And I know there's hundreds of thousands of people who um, didn't care for this record. And I know the press weren't too kind, um, but uh, this is a, this is a really iconic record and it, and it, it, it did a, had a huge impact on, on Genesis and on Phil Collins. And that's why I wanted to do a review on it. I wanted to tell you something really special before you go. Um, in reading Mike's book, Mike talked about his father passing away in October of 1986. And this record was released in June of 1986. And they went on tour in the fall. And while he was in America, his father passed away. He flew back on October 13th, 1986. Then he, the next day, October 14th, I believe it was, or October 15th, I can't remember, he flew back to LA. And then on October 17th, just two or three days um, after his father's funeral, they played at the LA Forum in Los Angeles <clears throat> um, on October 17th, 1986. And that recording is a very iconic recording and something I wish they would they would um, press on vinyl. It's the King Biscuit Flower Hour. And it's um, it's from the Genesis uh, Invisible Touch Tour. And it's, oh, it's such a great quality recording. It's, it's really cool. It's really funny. It's a good track listing. And it's really interesting to find out that Mike's father just passed away a few days earlier and he had just flown all the way back from England um, just to have gone to the funeral, didn't miss any shows, and to come back and to do this. And he's performing and he's enjoying being on the stage, um, knowing what it's what, you know, his dad was proud of him and knowing um, what that it was what he was meant to be doing with his life and uh, and how he was able to kind of hold both, you know, grief and 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 joy of, of playing music in his mind at the same time. I just thought that was really fantastic as I'm reading that in the book to realize that he his father passed away and he flew back for the on, on October 13th, 1986. And that, that this King Biscuit Flower Hour, and if you can find it online, and I know you can, uh, you should listen to that, that concert. It's really great. And it took place on October 17th, 1986. What do you think about Invisible Touch? I'm curious. Can you let me know? Uh, please subscribe. Uh, I, I would really appreciate that. And, uh, and let me know in the comment or send me an email what you think about Invisible Touch, where it ranks for you. If you're a Phil Collins fan, like primarily just a Phil Collins fan, what do you think about Invisible Touch? Are you familiar with it? What are your favorite songs on it? If you are a Genesis fan at any one of the eras or all of the eras like myself, um, what are your thoughts on Invisible Touch? Thanks so much for watching.
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to find out more about the show, go to everythingphilcollins.com. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review of the show. That really helps.